This is Hear It Now on Prairie Public. I'm Doug Hamilton. A new grant will help a professor and researcher fulfill a passion to educate Native American students in health sciences. Dr. Jacqueline Gray of the University of North Dakota heads the Seven Generation Center of Excellence in Native Behavioral Health. The five-year, $3.5 million grant that funded the center is the latest evolution in a long-time effort to recruit Native American students and prepare them to work in health sciences. Here at NOW's Ashley Thornburg reached Dr. Gray at her office. Dr. Gray, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. And I want to start um, with the name of the center, the Seven Generations Center of Excellence in Native Behavioral Health. Can you tell me a little bit more about the, the significance of that name in your culture? Well, the Seven Generations comes from the great law of the Iroquois Confederacy, which says that in every deliberation, we need to consider the impact of our decisions on the next seven generations. And in thinking about this center, we wanted to make sure that we were thinking what the impact on the mental health of Native people would be for the next seven generations and increasing the number of professionals that were prepared to uh, meet that need. Uh, Why is there such a need to, you know, specifically get Native American students into filling these health care roles? Well, when you look at the number of behavioral health professionals nationally, American Indians make up about one to two percent of the national population, but less than half a percent of the behavioral health professionals are American Indian. And it's much better for someone who have uh, a person who understands something about their culture or recognizes that their culture uh, has a great factor in what's going on with them, with their uh, mental health. Yeah, I was reading in in some of the research that's already been published, you know, you talk about stressing growing your own healthcare professionals, of course, meaning that that you want somebody from a, a Native American background to be working in these fields. What are some of the cultural differences that you that you talked about why when you're in terms of bridging that gap like sometimes females just like to see a female doctor what what is it about um, your culture is specifically that that makes this easier there are a lot of differences one is understanding the history mm-hmm. and the you'll hear terms like historical trauma which a lot of that deals with how, oh, through, our, through our history with colonization, that uh, there were periods of losing our uh, language, our uh, being, uh, children taken away from their homes and put into boarding schools, you know, never to return home again. Rather than learning their cultural parenting ways, they didn't learn about parenting when they were placed in boarding schools and many times were abused. So there are a number of things related to that that are very helpful. It also helps to know that there's, there's someone that takes that into consideration. Some of the testing that's used in psychology, you know, may ask about spirituality and things like that. And the questions in those tests are looking at, is the person, do they have a thought disorder? Are they schizophrenic? Where when a Native person is talking about seeing spirits or, you know, talking with things that 
aren't there or something like that. They're talking about a spiritual relationship, and it's a part of the culture. So it takes someone to understand what those differences are so they aren't mislabeling them as psychotic when it may be that they just have a very close attachment to their spiritual traditions. So really, it's it's as much a matter of, of empathy as it is intellect. I, it's more than just empathy. It's a matter of really understanding where some of those uh, comments and the way they they communicate things may come from the culture more so than... Uh, something being wrong. And there have been a lot of people mislabeled over the years because they strictly adhere to a Western perspective of how things would be interpreted. So how do you go and, and recruit the students to fill these roles? Are you going onto, onto high schools? Or are you waiting for them to be at UND and then kind of fostering for them from there? Yes and yes. We... Uh, we have a student services coordinator who travels to tribal high schools and colleges in the region, talks to students about behavioral health and the Seven Generations Center of Excellence. They also travel to conferences like the American Indian Science and Engineering Society, or ACES, the American Indian Higher Education Consortium, which is the organization for tribal colleges, the Native Research Network Conference, uh, all because you know, they want to find Native students who may be interested in behavioral health and talk with them about what we have to offer. Also, students who contact us or contact the university can be directed to us to answer questions or uh, help them with visits to the campus or other questions that they may have around applying to the university. So we contact uh, students in many ways, and then we also help to refer them to other Indians into psychology programs at the University of Montana, Oklahoma State University, and Utah State University. Oh, okay. So there's really a nationwide effort then. That's correct. For this. Okay. And now once you are able to get students into the program, is, is retention a problem? It is. It's, it's a very difficult transition, and we have some undergraduate programs in place to help deal with that. First of all, we have a peer mentoring program to help those students that are new on campus to make that adjustment. And many people might not think of Grand Forks as the big city, but when you're coming from a small tribal community, it is the big city, and they're away from home and don't have the supports that they might have at home. And so we help to build that family and those supports around them. And then this summer, we'll be offering the Ajogan program. And Ajogan is an Anishinaabe word for bridge. And this program helps to bridge students' transition from tribal high schools or colleges to the university setting and helps them learn about what services are available and what classes will be like and find their way around campus and things like that. There are also so things like our student success program that helps to increase their ability to succeed during their academic training. Okay. At the beginning of this, you mentioned family support. Is it safe to say that in a lot of instances, uh, sometimes these students are the first in their families to go on to get um, a college education? Absolutely. That happens in many of these cases. 
And the thing with that is their families, because of that, don't understand the stresses and what the demands are on them in the college setting. So they don't really know how to provide that uh, emotional support and encouragement that they may need to continue their program and stay in school. And so we try to be there to provide that as well. So so really the the support that you're offering I mean it it's intellectual it's cultural it's 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 empathetic and and really it it sounds like it's kind of a a family role that you're playing even too in in some instances. Yes it is. It very much is. We really become a family and you know if someone needs a babysitter if someone needs you know help digging out after a blizzard uh whatever it is we're there for one another. And that includes everybody. Sounds like it takes a village to raise students. (laughs) Well, and it really does. And we are growing these students. And the more we can provide those supports, the more apt they are to stay in their program and complete their program rather than quitting or going back home and just not coming back. And specifically, you want to get these students to be able to work, uh, like you said already, with uh, Native American populations, although not specifically, right? That's correct. Most of them, when they come in, they want to go back home and make a difference. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, talking with them about how it could be very difficult to go back home, because even though you've gotten your education and your training, going back home, people still see you as that little kid they knew when you were growing up. And so sometimes it takes going away from home for a while to maybe another Native community to get some experience in handling some situations before you actually go back to your home. And for some, it's better for them not to go to their home to provide those services, but another Native community. What are some of the biggest health challenges that are specific to the Native community? Well, the highest uh, suicide rate in our country is among a young American Indian males. And so that's, that's one of the biggest issues. We're also, uh, although there's lots of stereotypes around substance abuse, actually American Indians drink less than the general population of the United States as a whole. But those few who do drink are more apt to binge drink than the general population. So substance abuse issues around binge drinking and substance use uh, need to be addressed as well. Also, co-occurring uh, issues, not just co-occurring mental health issues, such as depression and anxiety or depression and substance abuse, but also uh, co-occurring with health uh, issues like depression and diabetes or uh, anxiety and heart disease uh, are very prevalent in Indian country. So the education that they're getting, can you walk me through, I mean, you talked about the peer mentoring programs and you, and you talked about a lot about the support programs, just the classes, What are, what is the class structure like? Well, what we're doing is supporting American Indian students that are in the regular psychology majors, and graduate programs in counseling and psychology uh, here at the university. And so a lot of those supports that I've already talked about are for our undergraduates. We also have a post-baccalaureate program for students who may have graduated 
we were finding that if they didn't get right into graduate school, they may end up working in a fast food restaurant, and we might end up losing them and not getting them back. So we wanted to keep them closer to their degree. And the post-baccalaureate program helps to support a student uh, from the time they get their bachelor's degree for another year to help them in preparing, doing research, or taking some additional classes uh, to prepare them for admission into graduate school. Once they're in graduate school, we have a doctoral level stipend for a Native student in counseling psychology. There are already uh, stipends for graduate students in clinical psychology through the Indus Psychology Program. And how long have these programs been going on? This, the, this specific center is fairly recently funded, but you've been working on this for how long? Well, the, the center was funded in July, and it's a five-year grant for $3.5 million. But there have been programs supporting uh, Indians going into psychology. UND has the uh, INSIDE program, which is part of the Quentin Burdick Act, And uh, that's been going on for about 20 years now. Oh, okay. But tell me more specifically about the grant that that you just got from the the Bureau of Health Professions. Yes. And, you know, besides what, what we wrote this grant for, we knew we had some good programs on campus, but we wanted to have more opportunities for Native American students to get through those good programs. And so we created... I I ask all of the programs to tell me where their gaps were. Where were they losing students? And so we wrote the different parts of this program to fit where they were losing students. One of the big areas of loss is when they're doing their research to complete their doctorate, you know, thesis and dissertation. And so there's a component of this grant where we help, uh, we meet as a research team. We help students in how to set up research in uh, communi- uh, Native communities. Uh, we do a what we call the res tour uh, will be each fall, where we'll take stu- uh, the students that are involved with the program and the interns from the uh, University Counseling Center internship to each reservation in North Dakota and spend a day at each one talking with clinicians, seeing their facilities, talking with leaders about what research needs they have in those communities and helping to build those relationships. So if there's a match with something that a student wants to do, they can work with that community in doing the research in that community. So very flexible, very, it it sounds like it conforms to the students. Right, and it helps to meet the needs, you know, because students don't know how to go about getting permission to do their research with a tribe, which is very different than just, you know, collecting data on campus. We have several levels that we have to go through to get permission in order to be able to do that because of the sovereignty of the tribes. Okay, so a lot of just sort of the, the politics of, of navigating bureaucracy even. That's, that's right. You know, and they wanna, we want to teach them how to do it in an ethical and the right way. One thing that I saw when I was reading in the, the, the 2011, your, your class of Native health researchers, you, you had 12 students, um, and, but nine of them were female. Is that, is that typical, that, that is kind of overwhelmingly a female program? There tend to be a lot more females than males. Uh, 
uh, as far as natives going on to school. But we do have several males in the program, and, and I think the article that you were talking about, uh, that just happened to be who was there for the picture that day. So oh, okay. sometimes that makes a difference, too. Okay. But do you have to is, – is the program – can it be tailored a little bit differently to, you know, to, to try to recruit more male students? Uh, you know, we're, we're constantly working to, you know, really – uh, recruit the best students, whether they're male or female. But we, you know, we have to work with what they're they're willing to give us. So we take what what we can get and we build from there. And what's what's in the future for the the Seven Generation Center and, and beyond for the Center of Rural Health and, and even just your research? Well, we're really hoping to build uh, an indigenous program through the Center for Rural Health that helps to reach out and really build relationships with tribal communities that when they think in terms of research they'd like to have done, they, they contact us and we're able to help them in developing their own abilities to do their own research or support what they're able to do with the students and the faculty and staff that we have here so that it really becomes a partnership. All right, Dr. Gray, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. Dr. Gray recently received the Excellence in Training Award from the Native Research Network for her work. And by the way, North Dakota Governor Jack Delrymple has proclaimed this week Indian Child Welfare Act and Wellness Week. Walking a mile in their moccasins is this year's theme of the 12th annual Indian Child Welfare and Wellness Conference. Started today, it runs through Friday at the Best Western Seven Seas Inn in Mandan. More here at now in a minute. Tonight's television lineup on Prairie Public starts with Bones of Turkana, a look at the astonishing life of Richard Leakey. Then at 8 Central, the debut of the Prairie Public documentary, I Am a Person. And at 9 on Nova, Mind of a Rampage Killer. Tune in tonight on Prairie Public. This is Here It Now on Prairie Public. I'm Doug Hamilton. And in the background, the gentle sounds of nylon and steel played by Manuel Barucco. He's guitar duets with Aldi Miola, Steve Morse, and Andy Summers. Well, every now and then, it's probably once a week, actually, we have uh, Tom Ezrin come by with a Plains Folk column. And this week's column is entitled Places of Faith. Over the past few years, I've spent a lot of time and gas prowling the countryside in pursuit of the culture of the plains at the grassroots. Much of this effort has been a search for heritage features that would render the prairie landscape attractive to independent travelers. And there are plenty of such features which are valuable in a direct way. As with all applied research, however, if you do enough of it, then larger basic knowledge eventuates also. Here is an underlying theme that emerges from the welter of material culture on the land. Our forebears were spiritually devout with a pervasive piety that is difficult to imagine in the 21st century. 
The inordinate number of country churches in North Dakota is an obvious piece of evidence of which most people today are aware. If we think of these churches as having merely a Sunday morning gather-to-worship role, then we miss the point. Country people of European immigrant stock made the church their center not only for the vital functions of life, worship, childhood, coming of age, marriage, death, but also for the pleasant diversions of life. Parishes had baseball teams and brass bands. They dispensed food and drink and companionship. Country folk went to town to trade, but that was like going into a foreign land. They came home to the countryside, where they felt solace in their faith. They also, even as they put plows into the earth to transform the land according to their conceptions of productivity, simultaneously sought to render the landscape sacred according to their standards of piety. The number and extent of shrines and other material expressions of faith situated in the countryside is astonishing. I'm thinking, for instance, of the wayside crosses of Warsaw. In the countryside round about this Polish immigrant community are emplaced seven roadside crosses, whereat a pious farmer en route to town to sell his grain might pause and make petitions, perhaps for a fair deal when he got to the grain elevator in town. These crosses remain, or if necessary, have been replaced under continuing care by descendants of the immigrant farmers who established them. I think, too, of the great groves and little chapels that surround St. Mary's Church of Daisy, installations on the grounds that make a place for the festival of Corpus Christi. The processions of Corpus Christi need places, physical emplacements on the land as bases to touch. It is sad when these material expressions of piety are neglected or destroyed. I wonder who in New England today remembers the elaborate shrines around which their ancestors from their St. Mary's celebrated Rogation Days. Does anyone even remember what Rogation Days are anymore, or are we already too deeply divorced from a land-based faith to understand what they once meant? Of all the cultural landscapes of the Northern Plains, that of German-Russian country may be the greatest example of a landscape rendered sacred through works. Just a few years ago, on their ranch near Braddock, Pete and Mary Ellen Nodden erected the Cross on the Prairie, a compelling crucifix fashioned by the metal artist Tom Neary. The Cross on the Prairie appears in a landscape already spangled with the Pray for Peace Shrine, the Neon Hilltop Cross at Zeeland, the Prairie Bells and Grotto of the Holy Family, and who knows what other fervently material expression that might stand on a hillside somewhere. All such installations on the land are intended to make us think. The aggregation of them makes me think all the more of a mentality among a people, of a spirit moving on the face of the land that is strange today, even to those of us who are its linear descendants. Except now and then I feel it still. Don't you? That's NDSU history professor Tom Ezern. 
I'm Doug Hamilton. This is Hear It Now on Prairie Public. In North Dakota, a statewide network of volunteers rescues pups from euthanasia to deliver them instead to happy families. Of course, it's not as easy as saying that. And to help us understand how this all works, uh, Kitra Nilsson joins us from For Love of Dog. Uh, she is a volunteer for this organization. Thanks for joining us, Kitra. Thanks for having me on. It's an honor. Uh, describe briefly the organization, For Love of Dog. No, for Love of Dog has been around the Fargo-Moorhead area for quite a few years now. I've been involved for about six or seven years. It's a foster-based rescue organization, so they get dogs that are at risk of being put down or might be owner surrenders and put them in foster care until they get a great adoptive home. So you need foster homes, you need adoptive homes. We need everything. Yes, foster homes are great. And, you know, for people looking to adopt, it's really an amazing way to go to save a dog that probably wouldn't have had a chance without, you know, the rescue and the foster home. So how do you do it? How do you, uh, who are your foster homes? How do people identify themselves as volunteers for that service? You know, it's people that are interested in doing it. So, you know, it's word of mouth and people find out about fostering and if it's the right, you know, if something they're interested in, get more information about it. But it's it's just everybody out in the community that's willing to take a dog into their home, um, you know, and, and maybe do some training and take care of it with, you know, food and those sorts of things provided by the rescue um, and basically care for that dog kind of like it's a part of the family until a family comes around to adopt that dog. And I should mention that uh, people can find out all kinds of information about this local organization for, that's the numeral, for love, spelled L-U-V, of dog.org. That's the website. For love of dog.org. So how do you match your dogs with their new owner? Well, there's a, you know, there's the process. You do an application and there's a phone interview usually, or there's some email communication to kind of find some dogs that might be right for that particular family. Um, and then there might be a meet and greet. So they can meet some different dogs, find which ones they like. And there's also a home visit because one of the main things is these dogs, you know, have lost their homes in the past if they ever had one. We want to make sure that the home they get into is going to be the last home that they're in. It's going to be their forever home. So we really want to make sure that that dog is a great fit. For instance, we might have somebody who maybe is a great fit for a low-energy dog, but they're interested in a border collie that's, you know, got a ton of energy. So then maybe trying to steer them to a dog that's going to be a great fit for them. But meeting the dogs is a great a great way. There's an adoption event um, at least once a week in the Fargo area, and they can go out and meet the dogs if there's not certain ones they're interested in and, you know, kind of take a look and see what's available. Now there's that old cliche that the dogs and the masters sometimes look a bit alike. So you're trying to match these personalities, <laughs> right? Yes, exactly. And the needs of the family and the needs of the dog is really important just to make sure that, you know, that family is going to be with that dog forever. How many dogs at uh, at one time might you have to uh, for for adoption? There, you know, the last I heard, I'm not sure how many was there was, but there could, I mean, there's dozens, you know, at a time that are looking for homes and are, are in the organization's care. So there's quite a few dogs that that are always needing homes. There's never any shortage of that. And we should mention that uh, there are some dogs in your uh, shelter, but there are always dogs in the dog pound. Yes, yes, there are always dogs in the dog pound. And for love of dog, just recently in the last few months got a facility over in Moorhead. So that's a great place if there's an emergency with a dog that's going to be put to sleep. Um, They can stay at the facility until a foster home opens up for that dog. So those they're still looking for fosters. They're just there so that they're not um, they're not euthanized in their shelter. What are the most common reasons for puppies to end up in shelters? 
a lot of the times, you know, we get pregnant dogs that end up in shelters because people don't have their pets, you know, their female dogs spayed, and then mm-hmm. the mom will end up there because they've realized, oh, wow, she's really going to have puppies, and that's going to be expensive, and they just can't handle it at that time, so you can have pregnant dogs. And people, you know, people usually like puppies for a little while, but puppies are so much work. You know, they're, they're going to keep you up at night. They're going to have accidents. They need a lot of training, so sometimes people get puppies and then realize that, wasn't something that they were really prepared for you know the the cutes are great but they didn't want they didn't need the hassle maybe so then sometimes you see puppies end up in shelters because of that or because they're running loose um which does happen you find puppies um sometimes they're abandoned which does happen too that you know puppies are left somewhere or um found somewhere and end up in shelters well, that's tough when it gets as cold as it has been today. It is, uh, yeah. Uh, I mentioned in the introduction to this uh, segment that uh, there's a statewide network of volunteers who kind of work together to rescue these pups and help them find homes. Is this like an underground railroad for dogs? You could kind of say that. Not a lot of people know about it, so it kind of is, and the main goal is, you know, to save lives. So in a way, it kind of is. And I should say, there's a nationwide network. That, I mean, this mm-hmm. happens everywhere, and for Dog is kind of the center of our area's um, networking for these dogs that need help um, in North Dakota and in our areas, especially in the rural areas, because they do an amazing job of helping the dogs that are in our local shelters. But we have dogs that might be in a more rural area, and there's no, you know, there's no rescue organization there. There's no humane society there. Um, there's nothing that can help. So then we need people to get those dogs where they need to go. Or there could be a dog that's in a Forgomore head shelter, but there's not a place in Fargo that can take that dog at the moment. But there might be some a rescue in the Twin Cities that can take that dog, has a great foster home for it. So then we want to make sure we get that dog there. So it's always about finding a place for that dog to go and then figuring out how to get that dog there. So this network is part of other networks, and uh, through the use of these networks, the animals get to where they can be accommodated. Exactly, yep. Do some of these animals come to you with serious health problems? Sometimes they do. Yep, we, you know, we get animals from all over, whether it be owner surrenders because the owners don't want to keep her anymore, or shelters, um, or, you know, all of those kinds of places, animal impounds. So sometimes they do have health issues, but that's something um, that, you know, we're aware of when we get the dogs is, you know, whoever has the dogs and is referring the dogs and will let us know. Um, and that's why it's important, too, that the dogs get to the vet right away so we can make sure that if they have any health issues, we get them taken care of. And you mentioned that some animals might have been abused. Uh, uh, are some of them just too dangerous or suffering from abuse to, to be handed off? You know, I've fostered so many dogs, and I've been a part of so many rescues of dogs, and that's so rarely the case. I think people think that oftentimes, but mm-hmm. there's so many, you know, for the few that, you know, maybe do are past that point where they can be rehabilitated, it's, it's so seldom compared to the number of dogs that need help. Um, and usually, even if they come, and oftentimes they are scared or they're stressed out or they're, you know, upset because they're not sure what's going on with them or they're missing their owner, whatever may have happened. Um, but a lot of those things kind of disappear as soon as they settle in, um, settle into a foster home. Well, uh, some dogs uh, look a little tougher than others, like a <laughs> mastiff or, or the yeah. pit bulls. And pit bulls have become rather common. Are, are those tougher to adopt? 
they're much tougher to adopt. And the, one of the really, really amazing things about Philip of Dog Rescue is that they don't discriminate based on breed, which is great because I, I adopted my dog. He's an American Pitbull Terrier. I adopted him um, about five years ago from Philip of Dog Rescue, and he is the sweetest dog on the planet. He would never, you know, he's so docile and just wonderful, but people see them and they're like, oh, I'm not interested in that, or maybe they have homeowner's insurance that won't cover it, or there's whatever issues. So they are much tougher to adopt out. They stay in rescue longer, so it's more money for the rescue putting in, you know, putting into these dogs. So um, for people that are interested in helping a dog that maybe doesn't have as many chances as some of the others, uh, you know, a bully breeder a mix is a great way to go. Is there a particular age that uh, might make it easier for an animal like a pit bull to be adopted? Um, you know, a puppy, puppies are all, always easier to adopt out than adults. They're much, much easier because people are more interested in puppies. Um, so, and the adults, you know, people kind of think of them as damaged goods, which they're not, but that's kind of a misconception. The great thing about adults is you don't worry, you know, as much about the potty training or, you know, what kind of you're getting, you know, their issues that they might have, you know, their personality that they're going to end up with because they're adults already. Um, <laughs> so in a way to go, my dog was about three and a half when I adopted him. And it was great because he's the same dog he was when I got him and I didn't have to go through him, you know, eating all of my shoes and, you know, um, destroying my floors. So I think an adult is a great way to go for people that are looking for a dog. And so your dog is eight and a half, nine years old now, and that's middle age for a dog, isn't it? You would hope so. He's not acting <laughs> middle age yet, but yes, he is. And yeah, it's a great age because he's, you know, got a lot of energy and we can go out and do our running and stuff, but he's good enough that he can chill on the couch when he's, you know, and I feel like doing that too. So. Well, let's get to some nuts and bolts here. I mean, the, it's a volunteer organization, but it isn't, yep. it doesn't cost nothing to operate. How much does it cost to keep animals in your system? You know, and that, it, it, it can really depend. You know, there's, there's the food needs. The vetting is a huge cost. The vetting costs are always huge because they need to be spayed and neutered. They need to be vaccinated and microchipped and all of these things. So that's a huge cost, and it, it can vary by dog. Um, and as far as the food and stuff, that's something that they would probably know more. I don't deal as much with that side of things, but it's very expensive to run a rescue, um, and they rely mostly, there's no county contract or anything like that. So it's basically on donations and fundraising that they operate. And how long are these dogs typically in a, a foster home environment? It, you know, we there's dogs that, you know, get vetted and maybe they're a puppy and they can be in a foster home for two weeks just while they make sure that there's no health issues or anything. And there's dogs that could be, my dog was my foster dog for about two and a half years before I adopted him because he was an adult pit bull and, you know, a male and nobody was interested. So it really, really depends. And that's why it's important when people foster that, you know, they know that it might not be that short, you know, two weeks to a month thing. It could be a little bit longer, but oftentimes it's a lot shorter than that. Well, how is For Love of Dog supported? Just through donations. Um, it's all donations, maybe some grants and fundraising. So it's local support that runs the organization and saves all the dogs. So again, forloveofdog.org yep. for all of that information. When did the organization start its work? Do you know? You know, I started with Kish, who is the founder um, of the organization, in about 2007, and it was pretty small then. I think she'd maybe been going for about two years, and I'm sure she'll correct me if I'm wrong on that. Um, But it was pretty small, and it's grown so much. She's taken this little, small rescue and, you know, the dream of helping animals and created this amazing organization with so many people that are involved in it and support it. So it's been really great. But it's 
than definitely less than 10 years. D- despite your efforts, uh, do some of your dogs eventually have to be euthanized? The only way that would happen, you know, if there's a severe um, medical issue that um, would keep them from having a life, you know, a, an enjoyable life that might happen, or if there's human aggression, for love of dogs, not going to, you know, not going to put anybody at risk of that. So if there's human aggression, that might occur, um, something like that. But they'll take every precaution, you know, every precaution to make sure everybody's safe from that dog if that's the case. And sometimes that is the case, and it's unfortunate, but... You know, that's kind of what they're working to um, stop from happening is too many dogs not getting the training that they need and having problems like that. But it's pretty rare that that would happen. You mentioned uh, the microchip. Now, I understand that you'd put that in an animal so that there's an identification in the case that the animal is ever runs off or gets lost or whatever. Uh, talk a little bit about these microchips. How do they work? Uh, how, how much does it cost? You know, they're pretty, they used to be a little more expensive, but now I think they're they're pretty affordable. I think mine were about $30 when I got them in mind. But I know that um, the Humane Society in Fargo, I think, has like microchips clinics and stuff like that where you can go in and maybe get them a little bit cheaper. Um, but they're so important because if your dog does end up in a pound, they scan every dog now and cat um, to make sure they don't have a microchip. And that's a way to, you know, find your dog, even if it was to go, you know, end up in Grand Forks, because they would still scan it and, and check for the microchip. Um, so it's a really great thing to do when you have pets because you just never know what could happen. Well, we certainly know that dogs and cats can wiggle out of their collars, <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, that microchip might help a bit. Uh, yeah. But I, I was reading up on your website again, and there's a, there's a newsletter that you put out. Your January newsletter said, you know, microchips are great, but you've got to keep them up to date. Yes, you do, because oftentimes they'll go and scan for a microchip, and there'll be a microchip, but it doesn't have the owner's information on it, or the information isn't current, so they can't get a hold of the um, Or if people buy dogs from, you know, like a breeder, they oftentimes put microchips in, but if they don't register the microchip, you might as well not have it in there, because they're not going to know how to find you. So it's really important if you have a microchip to keep it up to date um, and get in contact with the company if you have any changes in your contact information. Let's talk a bit about uh, owning a dog, too, the responsibility of the owner. And one of those things might be to get the dog properly trained. Yes, that's a very good one, yeah. Uh, is obedience training uh, easy to find? It is. I think in Fargo-Moorhead, it's it's pretty easy to find obedience training. And even in some of the other communities, you know, you can usually find them everywhere without having to drive very far. It's important to find a, a trainer that, you know, is right for you and he kind of has the same philosophies you have. And once you connect with that person, it, it's great and it can be a way for you and your dog to bond um, and a way for that relationship to be so much better because you're knowing how to communicate with your dog. Well, today I was reminded about uh, how cold it can be outside, particularly for pets that occasionally have to go outside. And uh, my my son has a very small Boston Terrier, the tiny kind, and and, uh, that is a real struggle, (laughs) getting getting a dog with toothpick legs to go outside. Uh, So what are some cold and hot weather issues we should be aware of with our animals? Well, you know, if it's really cold like this or really hot, keep them inside, except when you take them out to go to the bathroom. Um, You know, my dog's right now, he's not interested in walking at all because it's so cold. Um, There are boots you can put on your dogs because a lot of dogs do want to go outside and go for walks when it's just cold out. Um, And I would recommend just never leaving your dog unattended outside when it's this cold because if if something were to happen, if it would wander away from your yard or get out of the fence or, you know, get off of a tie-out, 
it's really, really dangerous at this point. So especially when it's this cold, you know, my eyes are on my dogs all the time when they're outside going to the bathroom. <laughs> we just had a caller, uh, Gitra, ask whether or not the chip, the microchip, can be updated. I believe it can, can it? Yes. Yep, they can always be updated. Yep. And it's really great to do that. And it's a great reminder because people don't do it sometimes. So, so even while it's been implanted, it can be updated? Absolutely, it has to be because, you know, if, you know, if, say, for love of dog was to put in the microchip, it might have their information, and then the owner needs to call and update it with their information, too, so that they know how to find them. But always update your microchips, if there's, and if you have any questions about whether or not it's up-to-date, just contact the company and make sure, because it's better to make sure than to not have it updated. <laughs> uh, just a couple of uh, legislative items here that might be of interest to you. I noticed that Minnesota Governor Mark Dayton is supporting a bill to tighten state regulations for professional dog and cat breeders. What do you think about something like that? Um, you know, I know there's a lot of controversy about that, and I don't know all of the details of the bill, um, but I think it's really important. We were, you know, us, you know, for love of dog and myself and a bunch of volunteers, and I organized a, a rescue a couple of years ago of a commercial breeder. Um, and once you go in and see kind of what's going on in some of them, it's you understand why it's so important that there be those regulations and that somebody is making sure that it's going well and everything is okay because there are breeders that take great care of their dogs, but there are those that do not. And that's what we call a puppy mill and it can be absolutely tragic. So um, for those people that kind of think it's maybe too much or we don't need it or it's, you know, they don't like it. I think once you go in and kind of see some of the conditions animals live in, in those situations, it's hard to dispute that that's something that we need. And we should just mention that there is a, a bill in the North Dakota legislature to amend the current animal cruelty laws, making neglect, abuse, and abandonment a misdemeanor for first and second offenses and a felony for a third offense. Uh, that uh, yes. legislation still pending, working through the legislative process. And uh, thank you very much for talking with me today about this. Thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it. It was great chatting with you. Kitra Nelson. Volunteer for Love of Dog, and again, that's numeral four, L-U-V-O-F-D-O-G dot org. We'll be back with more in a moment. We'd like to thank the North Dakota Council on the Arts for supporting arts programming along with our members and other sources here on Prairie Public. Here at Now would like you to contact us if you have comments, questions, or guest ideas. Give us a call at 1-888-755-6377 or write us at hearitnow at prairiepublic.org. This is Here It Now. I'm Doug Hamilton. Prairie Public's Bill Thomas has a couple of big dogs that have to get out and walk, and it doesn't matter what the weather is like. Bill says it's good for him, and besides, sometimes those walks lead to interesting encounters. Recently, on one of those really, really cold nights, I got my daughter to help me walk the dogs. And we went around a corner a couple of blocks from our house, and a door opened up in a house that we were just coming up to, and a girl came out, or a young woman, maybe a little younger than my daughter, which is to say late teens or something like that. And she was hurrying along. She passed us. She ruffled the heads of our big dogs, and she was nice looking. I started to notice, though, with surprise that she was wearing only a sweatshirt, no hat or coat or gloves, and it was like frostbite in seconds kind of weather, 20 below. 
And then the door of the house opens again, and an older, heavyset woman steps out. She's got one of those voices. She says, Julie, come on back now. You've got to come on back. And the girl turns around and says, I don't want to go back. I want to go home. And, and it's the voice and the intonation or the expression of a four- or five-year-old. And it all clicked into place for me then. I remembered that the house that she came out of was a group home for developmentally disabled kids who were learning to live on their own. Now, if Julie were the same age as me, like my distant cousin Sarah, she would have probably been sent off to live in a big institution. Those big institutions were set up with good intentions, and they might have worked pretty well, If they'd had adequate funding, if they'd had skilled and compassionate staff, they might have made a decent place for kids like Sarah or Julie. But that's not how it usually worked out. There was usually a lack of funding, a corresponding dearth of skilled staff, and such staff as there were often ended up too burned out to be compassionate. Family members could visit, but that didn't always work out either. As I remember with my cousin Sarah's family, it could be distressing to visit your institutionalized relative. Her mother left in tears, embarrassing to talk about them, and out of sight, out of mind. Sarah just sort of disappeared from family news. But I don't think she was having a great time. Well, that's not how it goes anymore. Because of work by the Association for Retarded Citizens, now known as the ARC, the big institutions were changed to a multiplicity of programs, one of which is this group home near my house. They called it deinstitutionalization, and in North Dakota, this happened in 1982, 30 years ago. This whole historic change is described and the human impact recounted in a new Prairie Public documentary for television called I Am a Person. It was produced by Kem Stengem. It'll be on tonight at 8. People of a certain age will remember the Grafton School, people that Kim interviewed for the show that live there sure do. And Kim says that after talking to all these people, she knows that the change was overall a good change, not a perfect change. You know well that there are still underfunded programs and overworked staff around. But I think Julie, even though she was distressed that night, she she did go back in pretty quickly, I think she's having a far better time than she would have in the old days. I hope to see her working around town sometime or maybe in a better mood in front of the group home again. I walk past there with my dogs every so often, and they liked her. That was Bill Thomas, Prairie Public's director of radio. Again, I am a person about the deinstitutionalization of developmentally and mentally disabled people in North Dakota is on the television service of Prairie Public tonight at 8 Central. Dakota Date Book is next. This is Kathy Lohr, NPR's Southeast correspondent in Atlanta. NPR is learning about people, the 82-year-old Mississippi man repairing his floor one tile at a time after Hurricane Katrina, the sun-worn fisherman in Louisiana who lost his job because of the oil spill, the immigrant family starting a new life in Georgia after fleeing Iraq. This is NPR. This is Dakota Date Book for February 20th. Blizzards are a part of life on the Northern Plains. They're difficult to predict, and they can be deadly. Most people who have spent a lifetime in North Dakota have at least one blizzard tale to tell their grandchildren. In the 1880s, homestead shanties dotted the plains, and roads were mere tracks across the prairie. 
Trains ran from Fargo to Bismarck and points in between, but spur tracks were only beginning to branch out from the main line. Even trains were unable to run for several months of the year. For many, travel was by foot or horseback, and many a homesteader lost his life when caught in a storm on the open prairie. It started out as a pleasant day in February of 1884, as the warming sun provided a feeling of early spring in Lamore County, Dakota Territory. It wasn't until early afternoon that there was any indication that the weather was changing and that people should seek shelter. A storm quickly developed, and heavy snow and strong winds obscured the landmarks, making travel nearly impossible. The citizens of Lamore became alarmed, as four stagecoaches were due by five o'clock, but only one had arrived. It became impossible to do anything in the teeth of the storm, which raged into the following day. On this date in 1884, as conditions improved, search parties began scouring the prairies. Casualties were very light, as most were able to find shelter in the claim shanties and sod houses along the prairie trails. The Ellendale stage was found upside down in a drift, with the mailbags and buffalo robes scattered nearby. But no sign of the driver or horses was found. Finally, after a long search, the driver, A.W. Sutley, was located two miles away in a settler's residence. He had left Ellendale carrying only the mail and got caught in the storm. With both driver and horses blinded by the snow, Sutley determined that the only way to survive was to release the horses to drift with the wind and then create a makeshift shelter. Overturning the stage, he tunneled underneath, making a hollow where he could wrap himself in the buffalo robes and wait out the storm. Being without food or drink, he ventured out and found his way to the settler's home as the winds began to die down. His face and feet were frozen, but he would fully recover. Blizzards would take many lives over the years, and even today they remain a threat to the prairie traveler. Today's Dakota Date Book was written by Jim Davis. I'm Merrill Pepcorn. Dakota Date Book is produced in cooperation with the State Historical Society of North Dakota, with funding from the North Dakota Humanities Council. Thursday on Here It Now, railroads and riverboats were critical to the development of North Dakota. Well, Dr. Mark Joy, chair of the History and Political Science Department at Jamestown College, will join us tomorrow to talk about that and the fact that he's going to be giving a lecture about that for the Barnes County Historical Society. That's coming up tomorrow. You have a great evening. <laughs>